السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So last week we were, we were on the tafsir of the first verse of Surah Al-Takathur and we had spoken about it at some length but hadn't quite finished um, what we were saying concerning the tafsir of the verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Al-Hakum Al-Takathur The constant amassing and gathering and striving for more has distracted you. And we mentioned a number of opinions. Uh, we spoke actually at great length about the whole issue of the balance between having more wealth or wanting more wealth in between, the way the Sharia speaks about that in a negative way, and then reconciling that with the positive aspect of having wealth and doing good with it, and the narrations that we get, whether from the companions or the other scholars of what it means to have that kind of wealth that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can bestow upon some people. And then we spoke about the way of reconciling between those two issues. And then we spoke concerning the verse Al-Hakum Al-Takathur and we were speaking um, about some of the statements of some of the scholars and or some of the scholars of tafsir in terms of the commentary on this verse. And I'm going to, um, I think we mentioned a couple of these last week, but I'm going to pick up again just as a kind of reminder as well. And that is what uh, in Adwa'ul Bayan, Shaykh Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala and his student Shaykh Atiyah Salim, they mention as the statement of Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala that Allah Azza wa Jal when he says Al-Hakum Al-Takathur, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't mention what it is that we're gathering more of, but rather he leaves it as general. He doesn't say that you're gathering more wealth, or that you're gathering more people, or that you're gathering more power, or that you're gathering more status or anything else, but he leaves it general. The fact that you're just gathering more is distracting you. And he says that that can mean one of two things. Number one, is that it is the action of gathering itself that Allah Azza wa Jal is, is rebuking, is dispraising in the Quran, that constant need to want more and more and more. And we mentioned those hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, like the hadith that if the child of Adam was to have a valley of gold, they would not be satisfied until they have a second valley of gold. And if they had a second valley of gold, they wouldn't be satisfied until they have a third valley. And nothing will satisfy the child of Adam except the dust of the earth, meaning until they die, until death. So it's the fact that the innate nature of just wanting to gather more, 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 more is the issue itself. And that's why Allah Azza wa Jal displaces the action without mentioning what it is that's being amassed. It's the action itself that is being dispraised. Or the second is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leaves it general so that it is general and contains everything, comprehensive. So it mentions and it folds over everything. So it's not just about money, it's not just about land, it's not just about property, it's not just about power. It is everything that can be amassed in that way, which then leads a person to be distracted from their wajibat, from their obligations and from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so Allah azza wa jal leaves it uh, open-ended in that way. Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala also says, Allah azza wa jal tells us that this constant striving for wanting more of the dunya has busied us and made us forget concerning or made us forget the next life and Allah Azza wa Jal until death comes to us and so we will die in that state or we will go and visit the graveyards and return without having contemplated that issue. Right? And I think we touched upon this yesterday as well. And this is an interesting point that Ibn Qayyim Taala mentions because he's mentioning two dimensions to this issue. And this kind of pertains to the second verse, Hatta Zurtumul Maqabir, but it's mentioned here as well. And that is the two dimensions to this verse is number one, that it is this constant wanting of wealth will continue until you die, until death comes to you, as is mentioned in the hadith that we mentioned of the son of Adam and the valleys of gold. Or it can also refer to a person being reminded of death, reminded of going to the graveyard, reminded of the ending and still not paying heed and attention to that aspect. And so despite seeing what they see and other people going through that difficulty and they can see that this is a certainty that each and every single one of us must face and must face fairly closely at hand, it is still something which doesn't allow a person to stop and contemplate and reflect over their own situation and what it is that they need to do in order to realign those priorities and turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned something similar. He says that the love of the dunya and its beauty and its adornments has busied you from seeking the life of the hereafter. And that has continued to slow you down from seeking that life of the hereafter until death comes to you and you visit the graveyards, meaning that you become from the dead. Meaning that visiting the graveyards, and you know, we'll, we'll speak about the different opinions amongst the scholars of tafsir as to what it means by visiting the graveyards. Is it merely visiting or does visiting mean actually to die and be dead and placed in those graves ourselves? But either way, he is of the opinion, Ibn Kathir ta'ala, that the stronger opinion is that Zurtumul Maqabir, the visiting of graves, is death itself. So visiting is a way of saying that you enter into the grave and that you die. Al-Razi in his tafsir, he says that Allah Azza wa Jal didn't tell us what it is that we are amassing. Why right, that same point? Because he said to leave it open-ended is ablaw. It is more eloquent and it is more forceful in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala criticizing and rebuking us for doing this. And so therefore he says that it contains, it concerns everything. Anything that busies you and takes you away from the remembrance of Allah Azza wa Jal and from performing your wajibat, your obligatory deeds, your mandubat, your optional recommended deeds and any other type of good and contemplating and thinking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all of this is included. And that's also a very interesting point because what Al-Razi is saying here is that it's not just that Allah Azza wa Jal is saying to us that the dunya busies us and distracts us and takes us away from fulfilling our obligations, from remembering to pray, from remembering to give zakah, from remembering to be obedient to our parents, from remembering to do the wajibat, the duties that Allah Azza wa Jal has placed upon us, but rather it can even be that it is distracting us from doing what is recommended. So a person's doing, you know, one of us, we're doing our wajibat, we're fulfilling our obligatory deeds, but we're not really going that step further. When it comes to the optional deeds, when it comes to doing that little bit extra, when it comes to finding what it is that we need to do in order to raise our level in Jannah, in order to accumulate extra good deeds, in order to go that extra little way, we will stop and we won't go that extra way because we then become busied with other things. So the example of that is someone who's so busy and so engrossed in what they're doing, whether it's their job or whether whatever else it may be, is that when they come to the salah, yes, they will pray their fard prayer, they will pray their four rakahs of dhuhr or their three rakahs of maghrib or their four rakahs of isha, but they won't have the time to sit and make adhkar. And they won't have time to pray their sunnah prayers before or after those obligatory prayers. And then the other types of mandubat, the other types of recommended deeds that a person does, even though we know as the Prophet told us وسلم, in the hadith, that from that which helps a person overcome the deficiencies that they have in their actions of worship, and especially in their wajibat, the obligatory deeds, is those optional deeds. And so Al-Razi is saying that sometimes that amassing of wealth, yes, you're doing the minimum, but what about all of those missed opportunities? Right? Didn't the Prophet say that a person will pass away from this life, will be in their grave, and they would sacrifice everything in the dunya, the dunya and everything within it, for the ability to just come back and pray two rakahs. Just to pray two rakahs. It will be more valuable to them, more precious to them, than the dunya and everything within it. And that's because of all of, all of those missed opportunities. The Prophet told us, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that the first thing that the people will be asked about on the day of judgment is the salah. And if it is good, then everything else will become easy. But if there is deficiency within it, then Allah will say to the angels, Look towards the actions of my slave. Does he have optional deeds that he can make up for the deficiencies of his wajibat? And we all know that we have deficiencies in our salah, a lack of concentration, a lack of khushu', mistakes that you make, whatever they are, intentional, unintentional. We have mistakes within our salah, mistakes within our wajibat. What makes up that deficiency is the optional deeds that you do. For your zakah, it's the sadaqah that you give. For your fasting of Ramadan, it's your zakatul fitr and it's your optional acts of fasting that you perform throughout the year. That's what it is for salah. Those sunnah prayers, those optional prayers, your qiyamul layl, your tahiyyatul masjid, your, one of those optional deeds are what make up for those deficiencies in salah. And so Razi is saying that it's not just about the wajibat, right? Don't just restrict it to 
oh, I'm doing what I need to do. I'm doing my five prayers. I'm doing my fasting Ramadan. I give my zakah. I've done my hajj. And then it's okay. But what about those optional extras? Right? What about those optional deeds? Because none of us has that guarantee that you will enter into Jannah just by doing the minimum amount of obligatory deeds. Right? Even though the Prophet told us, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Bedouin man who comes and says, O oh, Messenger of Allah, if I fast my, if I pray my five prayers and fast Ramadan and give zakah and perform the hajj, is that it sufficient for me? Will I be successful? And the Prophet said yes to him. He said, that's all I will do. The Prophet said he is successful if he has spoken the truth. That meaning, the meaning of the hadith is that he has to do each one of those in a way that is complete. Right? He has to perfect each one of those and do them in a way that is complete without having then performed or committed any of the major sins. And then anything which can negate from his wajibat, negate from his reward, and negate from those actions that he's performed. So how many people can actually do that where they can kind of like, you know, make that level meet? So Islam comes with all of those optional deeds that we should perform. And that's what Ar-Razi is saying, that it's not just about the wajibat, but it's about the optional deeds that the busyness of the dunya often distracts us from. Right? And as we know, you know, Ibn Qayyim and others mention that shaitan has levels that he attacks at, right? Levels that he, ha that he manages his attacks against the believers. From them is that he tries to make a person commit a major sin or a minor sin or an act of innovation or even an act of shirk. But from them also is to distract someone from doing optional deeds. So if they're doing the wajibat, he says, okay, you're doing the basic, you're doing the minimum. You don't need to worry about anything extra. And so he tries to distract people from doing the optional deeds that they should be performing. And then he continues Razi and he says, and it's not just even that, but even the ability to have tafakkur and tadabbur, to contemplate and to reflect. Right? So as Allah Azza wa tells us in the Quran, Afala Quran Do they not contemplate over the Quran or are their hearts locked and sealed? Even the time just to sit down and the Quran that you do read in the salah or outside of the salah to sit and actually think and ponder over that, right? To attend lectures and gatherings of knowledge and learn about your religion and expand your learning. All of those different things, just the ability to sit and think and make tadabbur is something which also the dunya has a way of busying us from and distracting us from and taking us away from those important elements that we require and we need. And so his tafsir, his commentary, Razi's, even though it is relatively brief, it is very deep in the way that he brings in those different aspects and that all of those are what are being mentioned in this verse by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ashanqiti in his tafsir, he says, and there are many other verses that speak about the type of destruction in the Quran. From them is the statement of Allah azza wa jal, وَمَا الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا إِلَّا لَعِبٌ وَلَهُ وَلَلْدَّارُ الْآخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ لِلَّذِينَ يَتَّقُونَ And the life of this world is except play and destruction. And indeed, the life of the next life is better for those who have piety. And the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَمَا هَذِهِ الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا إِلَّا لَهُ وَلَعِبٌ وَإِنَّ الدَّارَ الْآخِرَةَ لَهِيَ الْحَيَوَانِ لَوْ كَانُوا يَعْلَمُونَ And the life of this world is mere distraction and play. And indeed, the life of the next world is the life of eternity, if only they knew. Right? And this is an interesting, here, interesting point here, because we mentioned last week, that the word al-hakum, al-takathur al-hakum, comes from the root word of ilha. And ilha comes from the word lahu, which is what is mentioned in these two verses. And that means to distract, right? And so even though this is like, we're not going to the deep tafsir of this verse, but one of the interesting things in the Quran is how Allah Azza wa Jal, when he mentions lahu, sometimes he mentions it with la'ib. And la'ib is play, right? It's often like, you know, Al-Aab are toys in Arabic language. La'ib is play. So you have play and then you have distraction. How are the two of them linked? How do they complement one another? Why does Allah Azza wa Jal pair the two of them together and couple them throughout the Quran in a number of verses? So some of the scholars said because La'ib is the physical distraction, whereas Lahu is the destruction of the heart. Right? La'ib is physically playing. So you're busying yourself with issues of the dunya that aren't important, that aren't necessary. That's your physical action. The la'ib is your physical destruction. Whereas the lahu is the destruction of the heart. 
Why is it therefore that Allah Azza wa Jal mentions Al-Hakum Al-Takathur? He doesn't mention Lab in Surah Al-Takathur and in other verses where Lahu is mentioned وَإِذَا رَأَوْ تِجَارَةً أَوْ لَهْوًا يُنْفَضُّ Right in the, in the last verse of Surah Al-Jumu'ah يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُلْهِكُمْ أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَلَا أَوْلَادُكُمْ لَا تُلْهِكُمْ Right, the word Lahu is the one that is mentioned and that's because as we know the heart is the place where all of this takes firm hold right if the heart becomes distracted the body and the limbs follow whereas if the heart is mindful a tenfold of Allah Azza wa Jal has khushu' concentrates on its role in the dunya and understands its purpose of creation then the body will follow but sometimes Allah Azza wa Jal mentions both of them so one of the one, some of the scholars said the reason is because la'ib is the physical the limbs the body and lahu is the heart others said that lahu is distraction from something and la'ib is what replaces it right so you're distracted from worshiping allah Azzawajal. what do you replace that with so that empty space has now been left by being distracted what is it filled with that is the la'ib right so allah Azzawajal mentions both so not so because why they say because when you become distracted that space that you've left behind is never left alone. It's always filled by something. So for example, you know, if none of us were here today right now attending this tafsir class, would we be just nowhere suspended doing nothing? No, right? Everyone would be doing something else. You'd be busy with something else. It may be a waste of time. You may be with your family. You may be working. You may be eating, whatever it may be, but you will always fill that time with something else. So that is the la'ib aspect. The lahu is the distraction that takes you away from what is important, what is necessary. And the la'ib is what takes the place of the empty you know, arena that's left behind. That's what is called la'ib. So Allah Azza wa Jalla, he often mentions the two together, but he also mentions lahu on its own. So for example, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُلْهِكُمْ أَمْوَالُكُمْ وَلَا أَوْلَادُكُمْ عَنْ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ Or you who believe, don't let your wealth nor your children distract you from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or the last verse of Surah, Surah Al-Jumu'ah. When Allah says, and when they scatter towards trade or entertainment, whenever they observe it. This hadith or this verse has a cause of revelation, right? As mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ, the companion said that we were sitting in the Jum'ah prayer with the Prophet ﷺ. He's given the khutbah in the Jum'ah, Salatul Jum'ah. And a caravan, a trade caravan entered into Medina, right? So people who had gone on trade and commerce and business and the people of Medina, some of them who have invested in that wealth, others who want to purchase from the trade and the goods that have been bought back from that trade caravan. The caravan arrives during the khutbah at the time of Jumu'ah. So the majority of the companions stood up, the Muslims, and they rushed towards it to meet it. The narration says in Bukhari, I think, if I remember correctly, that only 12 or so people remained behind in the masjid. Only 12. Right? And that's why from the strictest you know, like rulings of Jumu'ah is what? إِذَا نُودِيَ لِلصَّلَاةِ مِنْ يَوْمِ الْجُمُعَةِ فَاسْعَوْ إِلَىٰ ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَذَرُوا الْبَيْعِ It's not allowed, right, to perform transactions in that time of Jumu'ah. Right, to the extent that the scholars said it is haram because of this verse. Allah says, hasten towards the Jumu'ah prayer and don't busy yourself in trade and commerce. And that's why one of the, you know, interesting fiqh issues, you know, inshallah, maybe when we get to that part, well, we can speak about that in more detail in, in Surah Al-Jumu'ah, is the issue of if you buy and trade in Jumu'ah, is that a correct transaction or not? Is it, because it's haram. Right? Allah Azza wa Jalla says it's haram. Therefore, if you buy something, is that a valid transaction? Right? I purchase this phone, I purchase a house, I purchase a car. Is that a halal transaction? Is it valid? Because it's haram. Right? So is the transaction still valid or is it invalid? If a person gets married during that time, right, the nikah for some reason was during the Jum'ah khutbah for whatever reason, maybe everyone was just there and it was easier. And, and so they do the, is it a valid nikah contract? Right? Because it's done at a time in which it's haram to, to conduct any type of transaction or any type of contract. So anyway, 
that's like a different issue. I'm sure we'll get loads of questions about it, but yeah. Uh, but that's an interesting like issue, right? And so Allah Azza wa but look at the wording. The point here was the wording of the verse, When they see any type of trade or any type of distraction or entertainment or something else, that's what happens. They turn away and they rush towards it. Allah Azza wa say, says, and they leave you standing there. Say God's gift, what is with Allah is better than any, any destruction or trade. Indeed, Allah is the best of providers. Right? And so that's also something which Allah mentions within the Quran. So those are different contexts in which the verse, or which, which in, in which the, the wording of lahu is mentioned within the Quran and destruction. Shaykh Ibn Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, he said, the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, takathur, amassing or hoarding or constantly wanting more, he says that it includes everything, includes wealth in all of its forms, and includes tribes, being pride, proud of, your, of the number of people within your tribe, right? the people that you kind of have a, 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 a nasab or they, they meet you in your lineage, they're from your, the people who are from your core tribe, to have that type of Fakhr and that type of you know like arrogance towards it that I have more people in my tribe, my family is stronger than yours, my clan is bigger than yours, my tribe is more prestigious than yours, and so on. What takathur bil jah, and likewise it can be to amass status, right? Status jah is status that a person just spends their whole life looking as to how they can increase their status within the dunya and within society. And he says what takathur bil ilm, and even knowledge. If that knowledge is something which distracts a person from what they actually need to know, right? And we'll mention this slightly later because there's another statement um, also that is relevant to this. He says, so anything basically that isn't mubah, isn't allowed, or isn't good, or doesn't bring a person ultimately closer to Allah subhanahu wa taala, can be included within takathum. And so a person having wealth, a person having status, a person even amassing types of knowledge that are unbeneficial, or knowledge which if it is, bene which if it is amassed, actually makes a person arrogant and proud and haughty and looks down upon others and belittles others, that is also a type of takathum. Because what they all have in common is they distract you from worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and working towards the akhirah, working towards the hereafter. And he mentions, you know, Shaykh Nathimah mentions the example of knowledge and the example of people who just accumulate degrees for no reason, right, and so on and so forth. He said they can also be uh, within this, right? And I remember when I was in school, was it school? I think it was school anyway. Um, we used to have a teacher who would constantly get degrees, right? She'd get a degree and then she'd get a degree and then she'd get a master's and then she'd get a PhD and then she'd go back and do another master's. And, and some people like that, right? They just want to have lots of qualifications because it interests them in studying. But just having qualifications by in and of itself isn't necessarily something, especially if it distracts you from what is more beneficial, what will actually bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so it's a very comprehensive, very general verse that speaks about this and obviously it pertains to different people in the way that it pertains to them. Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi, rahimahullah ta'ala, who is one of the great scholars of the past, he has a book in which he speaks about the, um, the importance of knowledge and the etiquettes of seeking knowledge and the mannerisms that the teacher and the student should have. And one of the points that he mentions within his book is also this issue of how from that which is considered unpraiseworthy, which isn't a good etiquette for a student of knowledge to have, is the amassing of knowledge that has no benefit. And he gives the example of his time of people who just collect books. So they have vast libraries full of books that they will never read, they will never benefit from, doesn't actually like, you know, benefit them in any way, but they just like the idea of having a very big library and, and many books, and they're constantly buying and buying and buying books. Have they ever read them? No. Have they ever heard them? No. Have they ever read them or studied them or understood them? No. But it's just that idea of wanting. And he says within his book, Iqtida uh, al-ilm al-amal, he says, and this gathering of books is like what Allah Azza wa mentions in the Quran, as those who gather and hoard gold and silver. He says it is similar to the one who just simply collects gold and silver. And so he says that can also be from this type of takathur, which is a person just gathering stuff that doesn't actually 
benefit them in any particular way. Right? And we have many, many examples of that, even within knowledge. So, for example, the issue of just wanting to uh, read hadith books. You know, there's sometimes people, what they like to do is open Bukhari and read it from beginning to end. Or Muslim, or Muslim Imam Ahmad, or all those types of books of hadith. Which in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. There's barakah in reading hadith and there's blessing. But the point of those hadith is not that they're simply read or that you get ijazat. Some people like to collect ijazat. Right? They have 30, 40, 50 ijazas, chains of transmission that take them back to Bukhari and Muslim and Imam Ahmad and Malik and all of those great scholars of the past. But do they understand the hadith? Do they actually know the fiqh of the hadith? Do they know what the narrators are or anything concerning the hadith? No. Most of them would struggle or many of them struggle with that type of knowledge. So that's the type of amassing of knowledge that actually doesn't benefit. It is takathur, amassing something which actually distracts you from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ibn Qayyim, I think it is, Rahimallah ta'ala, he mentions in one of his books how shaitan distracts a person in the guise of goodness, of, 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 uh, of obedience, of ibadah, of worship, but in its reality, it's actually something which takes a person away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is from the traps of shaitan. Shaitan comes and he says, no, actually what you're doing is good because you're seeking knowledge. But those people, some of them, they're seeking knowledge, but all they're doing is refuting other people, right? And they're cursing other people and they're criticizing them and they're slandering them and they're backbiting them. So what good is that knowledge that they gained when all they accumulate with it is sins and misdeeds and evil, right? And that's an example of it is takathur. It is gathering something which distracts you from the actual point. And one of the you know, most amazing statements I read of Imam Ahmad ta'ala, which shows you the fiqh and the understanding of the scholars of the past and how their standards and the way that they would measure things was very different to the way that sometimes we look at something. It said that one of the students of Imam Ahmad ta'ala, came and he mentioned to him another scholar. And he said to him that that scholar isn't very knowledgeable, meaning he doesn't have a great amount of knowledge. Not like someone like Imam Ahmad or Shafi'i or you know, known for hadith, known for fiqh, known for all of those different sciences. It's not someone who has a great amount of knowledge. So Imam Ahmad replied and he said, but rather he has already attained the goal of knowledge. He may not have another, a lot of knowledge, but he has already attained the goal of knowledge. So he asked him, and what is the goal of knowledge that he has attained? He said he has taqwa. He has fear of Allah. He has piety. The knowledge that he has may not be a great deal, but what he has has brought him closer to Allah, and that is the goal of knowledge. Those who truly fear Allah are the scholars. Right? So when that knowledge, an increase of knowledge doesn't bring you that goal, doesn't give you that fruit, doesn't give you that objective, you don't feel that closeness to Allah, then you have to stop and question yourself. Do I have sincerity in that act of worship? Am I doing it in the correct way? Am I doing it for the right reason? Am I actually studying and learning and benefiting something which I can bring into my life and it will benefit me and those around me? Right? And that is important, especially in the issue of seeking knowledge. Sufyan Athori, rahimahullah ta'ala, used to say that I never fought anything that I found more difficult than my own sincerity. Never fought anything. I never fought anything more difficult upon myself than my own sincerity. Because it's a constant battle and a constant struggle. And shaitan often comes in the guise of good and he distracts people just as he did with Adam alayhi salam. When he said to him, هَلْ أَدُلُّكُمَا عَلَى شَجَرَةِ الْخُلْدِ وَمُلْكٍ لَا يَبْلَى Shall I not guide you towards a tree that will give you everlasting life and everlasting provision? Right? He comes in the guise of good. Didn't come to them and say, disobey Allah didn't come to them and say, disbelieve in Allah. He came in a, in a guise of good and he said to them, وَقَاسَمَهُمَا إِنِّي لَكُمَا لَمِنَ النَّاصِحِينَ And I promise you, I take an oath that I have come to you as a sincere advisor. But we know that he was lying and deceiving them. And so shaitan often does this so, just because you know someone's engaged in knowledge or in some good or charity work or whatever, it is always a constant battle and there is a constant need to assess ourselves and our intentions because we don't want to be from those people who fall within this verse of amassing things and being distracted from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is there any reason, Sumaira is asking, why 
when the la'ib and lahu are mentioned together, la'ib is usually first, especially given the theory that lahu is a precursor to la'ib. It is actually mentioned both ways. So the two examples that I gave, one has lahu before la'ib and one has la'ib before lahu. And often in the Quran, when you have two words, two pair or a pair of words which come uh, in the Quran a number of times, but sometimes the order between them is changed, it is usually due to the context of the verse, the context of the passage. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about and focusing on, that one will be given precedence over the other. Right? One is mentioned before the other. That is often the case in the Quran, or that's the general rule in the Quran. Uh, it's not always true, but generally it is something to do with the context. <clears throat> okay. Allah Azza wa Jalla then says in Surah, uh, in, in the second verse of Surah Al-Takathur, حَتَّى زُرْتُمُ الْمَقَابِرِ Until you go into your graves. حَتَّى is a word which is mentioned often within the Qur'an. And Imam Al-Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala in his itqan, in his book on the sciences of the Qur'an, Al-Itqan fi ulum al-Qur'an, he says concerning the word حَتَّى, Imam Al-Suyuti has a whole section as do other scholars in their books of Ulum al-Qur'an, Sciences of the Qur'an, in which they mention the most common uh, words, right? the most common words of the Qur'an that are used by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of giving an added meaning. And they're often the short words that you often find within the Qur'an. Kalla, Ida, Inna, you know, Sofa, Hatta. Right? And we gave, like I think we did a couple of them before already. So those words that come in the Qur'an very often throughout the Qur'an, thumma, right? these are words that are very short that mean then or until or when and why and all of those types of small short words in the Qur'an, they often use them within their, uh, within their books. They have chapters dedicated to this because it is something which is commonly repeated within the Qur'an and something which they, which they mention in terms of the different contexts in which it is mentioned within the Qur'an. So he says the word hatta, Imam al-Suyuti rahimahullah says the word hatta means until, ila, up until, right, or at, until, or up till, or until, right, up till is not a word, until, right, until. And he says that it, um, an example of this in the Qur'an is in Surah Al-Qadr, salamun hiya hatta matla' al-fajr. In Surah Al-Qadr, the night of decree, Laylatul Qadr, is peaceful and it is until, it is until the time of Fajr. Right? It is until the time of Fajr. And that's the most common meaning in the Quran. The most common meaning of, of Hatta is until. Right? Like it is here in Surah Al-Takathur, Al-Hakum Al-Takathur, the constant wanting more will distract you. Hatta Zurtum Al-Maqabir, until you visit your graves. The second meaning that it is most commonly found in, in the Quran is that it comes with the meaning of K. K means so that they, so that, right? So that they. For example, when Allah Azza wa Jal says, in Surah Munafiqun, They are those, meaning the hypocrites are those who say, don't spend upon those who are with the Messenger of Allah so that they will disperse from him. Not until they disperse, it is because, so that they may disperse from him, right? And until, uh, for example, when Allah Azza wa Jal says, And we will test you and try you, so that we may make it known, those amongst you who are patient, and those amongst you who will strive, right? Not until you are patient, but so that it's known amongst you who are the patient from amongst you, right? So it comes with the meaning of until, which is the most common in the Quran, but sometimes it comes with the meaning of K, which means so that they will or up until. It is also sometimes mentioned in the Quran, the word hatta, for something which is impossible, in the context of something which is impossible. For example, in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah Azza wa Jal says, وَلَن تَرْضَى عَنْكَ الْيَهُودُ and the Jews and the Christians will never be pleased with you unless you follow their religion or until you follow their religion. But it's impossible that the Prophet ﷺ would ever follow their religion. 
but the word hatta is often used in the Quran to show something that is impossible. Right, to give something which is impossible. It's not going to happen and take place. But for Allah Azza wa Jal to stress a point that these people will never be happy with you, they won't accept you, they will never be pleased with what you're doing unless and until you leave what you're upon and you follow what they're upon. Right? And so it's something that stresses a point, but it uses the word hatta, but it is something which is impossible. Similar to it is the verse in which Allah Azza wa says concerning the disbelievers, وَلَا يَدْخُلُونَ الْجَنَّةَ حَتَّى يَلِجَ الْجَمَلُ فِي سَمِّ الْخِيَاطِ And they will never enter paradise until the camel enters into the needle, the eye of the needle. Right? Can the camel ever enter into the eye of the needle? No, it's impossible. Right? And so therefore Allah Azza wa is stressing the point, what that they will therefore never enter into Jannah just as the camel can never enter into the eye of the needle. But the word that is used in Arabic to show this and emphasize this is hatta. That it's something which is impossible to happen in the future. So here Allah Azza wa says, hatta zurtumul maqabir. Until they visit the graves. Ali radiallahu anhu, and this is collected by Imam al-Hakim in his mustadrak and it is an authentic narration. He said, ma zilna nashukku fi adhab al-qabr hatta nazarat al-hakum al-takathum. We used to have doubt concerning the punishment of the grave until Allah Azza wa revealed the Surah Al-Hakum Al-Takathum. Because we mentioned, as we mentioned I think a couple of weeks ago in the introduction to this, uh, to this Surah, that it is one of the few Surahs, if not the only Surah, that mentions the word or the, the concept of graveyards. Right? The concept of graveyards. And so therefore, the whole concept of graveyards and life in the graveyard and the barzakh and so on, it is one of the only times that it is mentioned in the Qur'an. That is disputed by other scholars because Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Qur'an, ثُمَّ أَمَاتَهُ فَأَقْبَرَهُ right? Then he died and he caused him to die and he is buried. Right? And that word qabr is therefore used in that context as well. But that is the verb and this is the noun. So maybe that is what some of the scholars mean, that it's not mentioned in the context of a noun except in this verse and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. But anyway, the statement shows the importance of this surah. And Maymun ibn Mahran, he says that I was sitting with Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, the famous Khalifa and scholar of Islam. Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, not only the famous Khalifa of the Umayyads, who ruled between 99 and 101 of the Hijri, but he was also a great scholar in his own right. One of the great scholars of Islam. And some of the scholars even went to the extent of saying that he was the fifth of the rightly guided Khulafa. Right? So after Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali, they said that he was the fifth uh, because of his righteousness and because of his knowledge. He said that I was sitting with Umar ibn Abdul Aziz rahimahullah ta'ala and he recited Al-Hakum Al-Takathur Hatta Zurtum Al-Maqabir. He will continue to amass and until it distracts you or, or you will be distracted by this amassing until you visit your graves. فَلَبِثَ And then he paused for a short while. And then he said to me, O Maymun, مَا أَرَى الْمَقَابِرْ إِلَّا زِيَارَةً وَمَا لِزَائِرِ بُدْ مِنَنْ يَرْجِعَ إِلَى مَنْزِلِهِ I think that a person who enters their grave is only a visitor. Because a person who visits must eventually go back home. Right? So what he's saying, and this is because we will find, uh, as we will mention, that the scholars of tafsir differed over a number of different opinions, about three or four, concerning the meaning of حَتَّى زُرْتُمُ الْمَقَابِرْ Visiting the graves, what does it refer to? When Allah says, you are visiting the graves, is it actual death or is it something else? Is it a normal visiting of the grave? What Umar ibn Abdul Aziz ta'ala is saying is that no, it's actually death. He says, why does Allah therefore call it visiting? Because when you go into your grave, you are only visiting the graves, not a permanent abode. And you will leave that grave and go back home, meaning in the next life to the permanent abode of what Allah has prepared on Yom Al-Qiyamah. So therefore, he calls it ziyarah. So Allah Azza wa when he calls it visiting, it can still refer to death, but it's called visiting here because it is something which isn't permanent for a person, will, continue, will go back eventually to the next life. Muqatil rahimahullah ta'ala said, Hatta zurtumul maqabir. He said, until you visit your graves, refers to all of you, meaning that each and every single person will die and they will go into that that 
phase of life which is called the barzakh, which is in between this life and the next life. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, and we mentioned this before, he says, was sahih, the correct opinion, is that the meaning of the verse, zurtum al-maqabir, is that you become buried within your graves. Visiting the graves refers to being actually buried within the graves. As is mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in al-Bukhari, and this is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam entered upon a man from the Bedouins, visiting him whilst he was sick. And he said to him, لا بأس طهور إنشاء الله Which basically means, there is no harm upon you, may you have purification, Allah willing. And the man replied, طهور, is it purification? بل هي حما تفور But rather it is a fever that is extremely, you know, like it is a fever that has overcome me. على شيخ كبير Upon a man who is old in age, who will soon go and visit his grave. And he calls the word visiting, meaning that I will soon die, right? And he calls it visiting. Ibn Kathir ta'ala says, therefore the Arabs were known in the Arabic language to call death, or one of the ways in which they would speak about death was ziyara, visiting the grave, right? And it's called kinaya, right? Which means that you're referring to something indirectly. So the Prophet said to him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, فَنَعَمْ إِذَنْ So therefore it will be, right? If that's what you're saying, therefore, it will be. Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala said, and the scholars of tafsir, they differed, concerning the meaning of hatta zurtum al-maqabir, until you visit the graveyards. So some of them said that it is that you will remember the deceased within their graveyards, and you will be proud over your forefathers and your ancestors, even though they have turned into bones and into dust. And what is referring to there is the causes of revelation that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of this surah, right? Where they said that some, or some of the scholars said that the cause of revelation for this surah is what that the different people of the Ansar or the different people of Quraysh or the different tribes of the Jews and so on, they would compete with one another as to who had more wealth and who had more position and who had more authority. And then after they had finished with the living, they would have the same type of arrogance and the same type of competition with their deceased. And some of the narrations say that they went to the graveyards to, to then speak about our dead and your dead, right? My dead and your dead, and our deceased and your deceased. And so he says, this is one opinion, that the ziyarat al-qubur, the visiting of the graveyards, refers to the living as they remember the death, right? Just as you, they remember the dead, just as we do when we visit the graveyards. The second opinion, he says, and others from amongst the scholars, they said that it is from a constant busyness of actually visiting the graves. So the first one is remembering death and remembering the ancestors who have passed away. The second group of scholars said, المقابر, until you visit the graves are people who go into excess in visiting the graveyard. They're constantly there, constantly there, all the, all the time going there and visiting those graveyards. And because they're there so much, they're remembering those people who have died, they forget to concentrate on their own life and their own deeds and their own actions and their own akhirah. And the third opinion he said is, as Umar ibn Abdul Aziz rahimahullah ta'ala said, it is that you will visit those graveyards yourself, yourselves with your bodies, meaning that you will be buried within those graves. And that is the position that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala chose. And it is the position that Sheikh Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala also chose in his tafsir. He said that some of the scholars said that it is referring to having arrogance and pride concerning those who have died before us. But he said, was sahih. And the correct opinion is, zurtum al-maqabir yani muttum. That those who visit the graves are those who have died and are buried within them. Because the one who dies will come into the grave as a visitor because his position within that grave is only temporary. And Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, he says, and in this verse there is a proof and an evidence that busying yourself in the dunya to the extent that you forget the hereafter is something which is disliked within Islam and it is something from the dispraised etiquettes or the dispraised characteristics of a Muslim. And Shaykh Abdul Rahman al-Sa'di, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentioned within his tafsir, he said that a person will continue to become busied and distracted from 
the akhirah until they visit their own graves, at which time they will then understand the time that they have wasted, but it will be too late for them then to have understood. Right? And that is a very beautiful tafsir, as is his norm. His tafsir is normally very eloquent and very beautiful. So it is someone who busies themselves, distracts themselves from the dunya until they visit the grave, at which time they will realize the time that they wasted and how they were distracted, but by then it will not benefit them that which they did in terms of in terms of visiting or in terms of benefiting from that reminder. Ash-Shanqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, he mentions um, two points here which I want to also mention concerning this verse. The first of them is he brings the issue of visiting the graveyards, visiting the graveyards, because it's mentioned in that as one of the opinions amongst the body of scholars of constantly visiting the graveyard, right? That's what it refers to. You visit it so frequently that it distracts you from the akhirah. He says that we have the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, the famous hadith of Burayda radiyallahu anhu in Sahih Muslim. Kuntu nahaytukum an ziyaratil qubur ala fazuruha, fa innaha tuzahidu fi dunya wa tudakkiru al-akhirah. Those, I used to forbid you from visiting the graveyards, but now visit them. For indeed it makes you remember the hereafter, makes you remember death, depending upon the wording. He then mentions that there's a difference of opinion amongst the scholars concerning the ruling of women visiting the graveyards. Some of the scholars said that it is allowed for them to visit based upon this hadith, right? That the Prophet allowed it and it's a general hadith, so it's allowed for everyone. And others from amongst the scholars said it's not allowed for them. Based upon the other hadith in which the Prophet cursed the women who visit the graves. And he said to him, he said in the hadith, Allahu. Zairatil Qubur in the hadith of Abu Huraira in a Tirmidhi. Or in the other wording, Zawaratil Qubur. May Allah Azza wa curse the women who visit the graveyards. Or in the other hadith, who frequently, in the other wording, who frequently visit the graveyards. And the scholars differed therefore. So you have a body of scholars like the Hanbali Madhab and others who say it's not allowed for a woman to enter a graveyard. And other scholars say it is allowed. And then you have the middle position, which is the one that Shaqiti rahimahullah ta'ala chooses and his student Atiyah Salim rahimahullah. And that is that it is allowed for a woman to visit the graveyard, but not to frequently visit it. But to visit it every so often, once in a while is allowed. What is not allowed is for them to frequently visit the graveyard because of the hadith that Allah Azza wa has cursed the women who frequently visit the graveyard. And that's because Sometimes, you know, women become emotional at that point and they do things which they shouldn't do in the graveyard. They are more likely to become emotional than men. And so therefore, they shouldn't be frequently visiting the graveyards. And they use as a delil for this two hadith. One of them is the hadith in Sahih Muslim, the hadith of Aisha, radiallahu anha. The famous hadith, or the long hadith anyway, I think it's well known. But the Prophet ﷺ left Aisha radiallahu anha in the night and she became jealous. She thought that maybe he's going to visit one of his other wives. So she followed him in secret until she came and found that he had entered into Baqi' which is the graveyard of Medina. Entered into Baqi' the graveyard of Medina. And so when the Prophet ﷺ returned, uh, when he was leaving, she returned home. But the Prophet ﷺ caught up to her. He came into his house and he found that she was awake. So she, be, you know, she used a very clever uh, strategy, which was that she asked him a question. So that he wouldn't ask her, what are you doing up? Where were you? What were you doing? She asked him a question instead. And she said, oh, Messenger of Allah, if I visit the graveyard, what should I say? What is the dua? So the Prophet said to her, say to them, Assalamu alaikum, ahl al-diyari, That famous hadith of visiting the graveyard. So the scholars say the fact that this hadith, this hadith is Sahih Muslim, the fact that he said to her that this is what you say, when you visit the graveyard shows that it's allowed for a woman to visit the graveyard once in a while, right, to go and do something. Obviously, the other scholars who disagree with this, the Hanabila and so on, say that, you know, this is the dua that you make when a woman, what? Walks through or she's passing by, like she's, she's you know, passing by and she's not in the grave, but she's passing next to the graveyard. She can make that dua from outside, not necessarily that she's going in and she's visiting the actual graveyard itself or that she's just simply passing through because it is something which she needs to do on her way. But then they have another hadith, and this hadith is in Al-Bukhari, the hadith of Anas radiallahu an, of the woman who was crying and she was wailing, and she was extremely upset because she lost someone close to her. 
So the Prophet ﷺ came to her and he spoke to her and he told her to be patient. So the Prophet ﷺ tells this woman to be patient and she replies to him and she says, go away from me. You don't know what I'm going through. Because of her severe emotional reaction. She becomes extremely upset and she doesn't realize who it is. So once the Prophet ﷺ walks away, they say to her, do you not know that that was the Prophet Right? She didn't realize because of how distressed she was. So she came to the Prophet ﷺ and she said to him, O Messenger of Allah, I apologize. I didn't know it was you. And the Prophet said to her, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, إِنَّمَا الصَّبْرُ عِنْدَ صَدْمَةِ الْأُولَىٰ Indeed, true patience is when calamity first strikes. True patience is at the time when calamity first strikes, meaning that it's not when you've been reminded and then you have to be told. And then A true test of patience is as soon as that calamity strikes, a person remembers Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala and they show the type of patience. This hadith, some of the scholars said, the woman was in the graveyard and the Prophet never said to her, why are you here? What are you doing here? Shouldn't be in here. Didn't tell her to leave. And so therefore, it's another delil that they use, an evidence to show that it is allowed on the odd occasion. Right? And that is uh, reconciling between those different hadith and those different narrations and trying to find a middle way between the hadith, one that says that it is an issue of cursing, which makes it a major sin, right? Because a major sin in Islam is what? Something which has an act of or a threat of punishment attached to it. Right? We know that there is a threat of punishment or a specific punishment that is linked to that action, that sin. So when there is a sin that has, and you were told that there is a threat of punishment, which is la'an, which is like this hadith, a curse of Allah Azza wa Jal. The curse means what? The person is removed from Allah's mercy. They are distanced from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy. Or that Allah Azza wa will become angry with them. They have the wrath and the anger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or that there is a specific punishment that is attached to it, right? Like murder, like theft, like adultery, and so on and so forth. There is a specific punishment that has been attributed to it within the Quran or within the Sunnah. It makes it a major sin. So therefore, you have that hadith which makes it a major sin. And then you have the other hadith that show and indicate that there were times in which Either the women were allowed or they would do it or that it was something which they would do once in a while. And so therefore the reconciliation that these scholars have, and I think that this is a, a, a strong position inshallah ta'ala, is to bring those two positions together and say that as a one-off every so often, every once in a while, it's okay. Or if there is a need, for example, but otherwise it is something which should be avoided generally and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Second issue before I open up to, uh, to any questions. Uh, which also Shanqiti mentions in his tafsir, but it's also mentioned by others. Ibn Atiyah mentions it in his tafsir. Abu Hayyan, who has a famous tafsir, again you'll find his, these biographies on that, um, those notes that I did, which have yet to be uh, put into... Oh wait, what was it? <laughs> Chronological order where you can click on some, some fancy thing and everyone's like, no, no, wait, we'll do it. How many weeks has it been? Anyway. Two months, all right. Inshallah, I thought my tafsir was slow. <laughs> so, so anyway, Abu Hayyan is one of those, one of those uh, scholars of tafsir. He has an amazing tafsir, and his tafsir primarily deals with issues of, of language and issues of you know like uh, poetry and poetics and eloquence and so on. It's a very nice tafsir. But anyway, all three of them mentioned something which was a phenomenon at that time. I, I mentioned this because it's something which, especially Abu Hayyan ibn Atiyah lived hundreds of years ago and they mention it as something being prominent in their time and anyone who's recently you know been to any graveyard or most graveyards will will see that it's something which has continued unfortunately within our time and that is that they said that from the ziyaratul qubur or from the way that allah azza wa jal or from the way of distracting people from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even within the graveyard they say is what we find within our time when people come and they beautify their graves and they build monuments over them, and they have flowers, and they have candles, and they have all sorts of marble effects that they place upon the graveyards, and this is something which they say is something which the Sharia didn't order with, and it's something which should be avoided, right? And that's interesting, because they mentioned this how many year, hundreds of years ago, right? Five, six, seven hundred years ago, some of these scholars lived. Okay, Shaqidi is more, you know, more contemporary, 
not too long ago, but these other scholars lived hundreds of years ago. And they said that it's become a phenomenon within their time, that they find this within the graveyards. And so even when a person goes to the graveyard, the purpose of which is what? To remind you of the akhirah, to remind you of death, to remind you of the stark and harsh reality of death. All you see now is beautification, adornments, flowers, nice messages, I find balloons, there's teddy bears, there's candles, there's, there's everything, literally. Right? And you know, like the difference between a birthday and, and a funeral, if you were to just remove the, the context of the location, it's very difficult sometimes to see the difference between the two. And that is all that way of shaitan trying to make us beautify death, make it palatable, make it acceptable, make it something which we don't, we don't have to then face the harsh reality that tomorrow it's going to be me and you. And that's what death should do. Right? The Prophet told us, remember the destroyer of pleasures often. The destroyer of pleasures is is death. So they said that this is a phenomenon that we've seen in our time, right? And it's something which unfortunately even till our time we see within the graveyards, right? And that's something which you see, you know, the scholars mentioning how constantly one of the positions of Hatta Zultum al-Maqabir is people who go to the graveyard and what happens is they're constantly visiting. They're constantly visiting. Why? Because they're constantly tending to those graves. They're planting flowers and they're doing this and they're, and they're constantly and they're watering those flowers and that requires a weekly visit especially if it's something which is done in the summer and so on and that's what you see right people becoming distracted from the even the the position or the objective and the goal of visiting the graveyard they become busy and they become distracted by doing something else instead so anyway uh the so those are the two points that are mentioned within those books of tafsir uh we mentioned that Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said that Al-Maqabir, this is the only time that it's mentioned within the Qur'an. And you know, it goes without saying that the scholars mention that if someone really wants to pay attention to this, these verses and what they mean, it is a reminder of death, it is a reminder to go and visit the graveyards and take that harsh reality and lesson that Allah has given to each and every single one of us about the fragility of life and the temporary nature of that life. I want to conclude with one final thing, inshallah ta'ala, before we call it a day. And that is something which Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala mentions within his tafsir. And I just thought it's an interesting point that he mentions. He refers to, um, when he's referring to the word maqabir, right? Because there are two plurals in the Arabic language for the graveyard. Right? The singular is maqbara, and the plural is qubur, right? which means graves, and maqabir, which means Graves or graveyard. He mentions the name of a scholar who was from the Tabi'een, from the students of the companions. He studied under the likes of Aisha and Abu Huraira and Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas. عنهم, he died in the year 125. And he says his name was Abu Sa'id al Maqbari. He's a famous scholar of hadith. Abu Sa'id al Maqbari. Abu Sa'id, and then his title is Al Maqbari. Right? And Al Qurtubi says, or Dhahabi rather, he says in his seer, he says, and he was known as, as this because he used to live around and next to the graveyard of Baqi in Medina. And so people began to call him Maqbari. And so the name stuck and he became known as Abu Sa'id al-Maqbari. Right? I only mention this because Al-Qurtubi mentions this in his tafsir. And it's something which they often do within the tafsirs. They bring these you know, nice little points that they just come across in other things. And they mention it as something as like kind of trivia. Okay, so any questions? I'm not going to deal with the fiqh issues. Um, is collecting ijaza for the sake of it considered riya? I mean, intentions of people are for them to like consider and, and, and determine. But just the point was just to collect ijazas for the sake of ijazas isn't the way of the scholars, nor is it the way of seeking knowledge. Or rather, knowledge has its purpose, right? And that is to learn and to benefit and to act upon that and to call others upon it, and that it gives you taqwa and it brings you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the purpose of, of knowledge. Some people never reach an actual grave as they have been drowned or burnt or whatever else than burial. Are these people excluded from this verse? So the Quran speaks about the majority, right? the, the general rule. Obviously there are people who aren't buried for whatever reason, they drown, they're burnt or whatever it may be. Those people still go into the life of the barzakh, right? because we have the, the hadith of the man the Prophet told us of the man who gathers his children, his heirs, and he tells them to burn his body because he did no good and so on. And Allah Azza wa will gather his ashes back. The hadith is long, 
But the point is that it's mentioned within the Sunnah. So the point is that they have still a life of barzakh, a life between this life and the next, even though they don't necessarily go into the grave or they're not necessarily buried, right? So it's not a condition that they have to have a burial or be in a graveyard or wherever. Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who controls everything in the heavens and the earth. What about growing plants, grass and graves in an attempt to ease the deceased stay in the grave? It is a hadith Mr. Prophet did this to one of the companion's graves. The hadith of the Prophet I think that you're referring to the hadith in Bukhari of the two people of the graves These two people are being punished in their graves and they're not being punished for anything major. And the, the meaning of major here isn't that they're not major sins as the scholars say, but rather that it's not something which people consider to be major. As for one of them, he wouldn't protect himself from the splashes of urine, and as for the second, he would walk around spreading rumors. Right? But this hadith actually shows that they are major sins. But it's something people don't consider to be major, they consider it to be small. So the Prophet took two sticks and he placed it in their graves and he said, perhaps this will lessen their punishment until they dry, until these sticks dry. That is something specific for the Prophet to do. Right? So it's not something which you can make qiyas upon. It's not something which you say, okay, now you know, plant you know, flowers and, and whatever else on the graves and therefore it's going to make things easy. That's something specific for the Prophet because that's something which Allah gave him the ability to do. So it's not something that's a ruling that you deduce from and apply wholesale for everyone else. Yeah, you have a question? Someone had a question? It's okay? Does the intention you make for the accumulation make any difference as to whether it's considered extraction? Yeah, so clearly the intention makes a whole lot of difference, right? So if a person's working to gain wealth and they're doing it with the intention of earning a living that is halal, providing for their family and their children, then obviously that has a major impact and it changes what is uh, an allowable action, a permissible action into an act of worship, right? Because a person can change the nature of a deed just as a good deed what is a good deed apparently can become haram right, and can become a sin based upon intention, right? So if someone is, uh, you know, is, 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 is praying, but they're praying to show off what is a good deed by intention becomes haram. So the vice, the opposite works as well. Something which is bad or something which is just normal, it's just every day. If you have the good intention that, that is uh, accompanying it, it changes it into a rewardable action and into an act of worship. So clearly there is something which, you know, that is something which can be done. The hadith is speaking therefore about generality, right? The verses rather speaking about generality. Clearly in the sunnah we have those hadith that tell us, yes, use your time and use your intention to maximize that opportunity. So when you're working, you have that intention of doing good, right? When you're sitting with your friends, it's not just sitting with your friends, but your intention is that I'm doing this because I love them for the sake of Allah and I want to come closer to you, O oh Allah. And so just by having that and with your family, same similar intention, those actions now transform themselves from things which are just ordinary everyday occurrences to acts of worship because of the intention that has changed and makes it into an act of worship and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. So you know this notion of if your fard isn't up to standard, it's topped up with sunnah acts. Is it necessarily like for like? Like for example, according to some knowledge is considered Seeking knowledge is better than praying nawafil or not. Yeah. So if your fard is not to scratch, can it be topped up with different types of class of worship? Or, yeah, so can an act of worship uh, or an obligatory act of worship be topped up by any optional deed or is it just from that same kind of category of deeds? So prayer, does it have to be prayer or can it be seeking knowledge and so on? To be honest, I don't know. I, Allahu alam, I don't know. Exactly, but, but one thing that I would say is that what you will find from the scholars is that they, it wasn't their practice, for example, that they would leave off doing good deeds. Yeah, generally. Yeah, generally like generally. they wouldn't leave off their sunnah prayers or their qiyamul layl to seek knowledge, right? And say that that's going to make a price. So, because the whole point of knowledge is that you increase in action, right? And that's not only in, uh, in knowledge itself, but in other actions, because the Prophet, who was the most knowledgeable, did those other actions as well, right? So, Therefore, it's, so I don't know, to be honest with you, um, and generally the scholars would, would, wouldn't leave that stuff off, except for, um, you know, you have like, for example, Abu Zur'ah, Al-Razi, said Imam Ahmad, his son, Imam Ahmad's son says, that my father never used to leave off the optional prayers unless Abu Zur'ah came to see him. 
and then he would spend the night with him studying. And he would say to me, oh my son, teaching him is more beneficial than praying my, my, my nafil prayers. But that's like a one-off. And that's for someone like Abu Zura, who's a, you know, an amazing scholar in his own right, because he wants to benefit him from the short amount of time that they have together. Right? And so they, you, know, you have those kind of determinations, which you can do every so often. Right? You see, actually for me now, rather than praying Qiyamul Layl, there's something which will be more beneficial, or vice versa. And so that's something which, you know, which, um, which, you, can, which you can determine. But generally as a rule, that's not the general rule. And Allah knows best. Okay, Barakallah fikum. Sorry. You know, um, if somebody does these op- all these optional prayers, uh, but there's deficiencies in both the optional ones as well as the fard, does this do make up for the, the fard? Yeah, so the, the optional ones are always optional. What they will make up for is the fard. Right? That's what's most important because once those are full, you fulfill the obligations and you have Jannah. Because that's the minimum, right? That's what you need to be done. So even if they're deficient, the optional deeds are deficient within themselves, even if just say one's worth half, that still goes to filling up the obligatory deeds, right? And Allah knows best. Okay,